This is Social Media Simplified, a podcast that takes the guesswork out of using social media to build your audience and increase your exposure on the web. Join us as a social media scholar for exclusive tips, tactics, and strategies to create content, market your brand, and much more. Let's do this. Welcome, social media scholars, to Social Media Simplified. I'm your co-host, Lante Tacona, your collaboration connoisseur. And as always, Nathan Garrett, your digital dynamo. And on today's episode, we have a very exciting show for you. A good friend of ours, Oliver Cable, joins us for a chat, and we discuss three critical moments of successful entrepreneurship. We start off by talking about Oliver's upbringing and then getting into a discussion about overcoming entrepreneurial challenges and feeding your hunger. And here's the interview. So, so Oliver and I, um, we, we lived together in, in England for, what was that, about a year? A little over a year? A little over a year. Yeah. And um, yeah, um, we met, uh, actually, we, we both moved into this, this flat, this apartment. Um, we were the first people to move into it. And so um, uh, no one knew each other before we moved in. Actually, the owner of the flat was organizing who he wanted to live in the place. So, um, so yeah, there was two other other people with us, and and Oliver and I pretty much clicked. <laughs> yeah. So it was cool to like live with somebody who you know you get along with. But um, yeah, as we kind of like you know continued our friendship and grew, we we really got into a lot of the entrepreneurial side of things. Um, and and since then, Oliver's done some amazing. Yeah, that's, right. that's what I've been hearing. And so uh, that's why we have him here today. Talking yeah, about... welcome, man. Appreciate you being on. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, Good so just want to talk about you know, uh, this whole entrepreneurial journey and maybe some of the things, where'd you start, your humble beginnings and, and where you are now. So, so Oliver, why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where, where, where you live, where you lived, and maybe leading up to where we met, and, and then we can get into some of the, the details of what you're working on. Sounds good. So I was born, grew up in Holland, just across the, across the channel, um, and was there secondary school and then went to university over there. So I studied hotel management at one of the top hotel schools there, which was really cool because it got, gave me the opportunity to go to Nice and go to Kuala Lumpur on six-month internships. Besides that, which I met some cool people on the course, um, one of which has become an important part of my life and my creative process but more on that later um then i decided well i i realized this love of writing uh, and i've been writing since i was about 14 um in terms of the writing that you do outside school the, the stuff that you're not forced to do and i thought well you know what's cool writing's cool so i decided to moved to London to get a job in the publishing world because I want to work in publishing in English and London is the hub for that. So got on the plane, came over to London and I was <laughs> funny. I mean, it's funny to think back on it. Um, initially I was working kind of week to week, just trying to get, trying to get work experience for the next week. And it was, this was all unpaid trying to find accommodation for the next week and trying to find a full-time job. Uh, and my accommodation at the time was me living in hostels. So I was sharing rooms with six, eight, 20 people at some, at times, uh, just kind of dragging my bag and my life around London, uh, <laughs> trying, trying to get a job in publishing, 
um, becoming more and more disillusioned with this job in publishing. And eventually I ended up, um, well, doing work experience at the Financial Times and then getting a full-time job there. Uh, that, that's, that sounds like an awesome story. I mean, you hear a lot of times, you know, entrepreneurs living out of cars mm-hmm. and, you know, in their basements and stuff. And, and it's funny because you're, you're basically living out of a suitcase, showed up to a whole new country <laughs> and trying yeah, to man. make it happen. Yeah, being dedicated like that, though, is pretty interesting. Like, as far as um, sticking to it at the beginning, even though it was tough. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, I, I look back on it with fond memories because, you know, in hostels, there's always people to meet. There's always someone to have a beer with. But they leave after three days, so you never really make any yeah. deep connections with anyone. And at the same time, you're trying to shower, get dressed into a suit, go into a formal nine-to-five job while you're almost homeless. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's, it was quite a juxtaposition, really. But... <laughs> But but there was light at the end of the tunnel, correct? There was we indeed. Living together eventually, right? <laughs> there was indeed. I got my job at the FT and found this place up in Archway, North London. And again, like like Lante said, didn't know anyone um, yeah. moving in there. It was all potluck. It was all decided by the landlords. And, you know, there was someone else in the house that it really clicked with. And we became really good friends. So... I'm curious, tell me more about how you got that job at the Financial Times. So once I got to London, I realized that cold emailing and cold calling people was not really going to work because there, there's so much competition for mm-hmm. jobs in general, jobs in publishing. I hadn't necessarily taken the standard route into a job in publishing, which is studying English literature at university and then moving into publishing. That's changing now. But at the time it was very, it was, it was quite, you know, uh, homogenous, the people who were going into, into publishing. Coming from a different background, I had to leverage connections. um, And my cousin, who writes for the Financial Times, um, put me in contact with someone eventually in the communications department of the Financial Times. And I got some work experience there. And once, once you've got your foot in the door somewhere, it's a lot easier to actually, you know, because then you've met the people face to face, you've had meetings with them, you've, you know, drunk tea with them, um, or beers, you know, after, after going out. And it's just much easier to you know, move around. People will give you a personal recommendation. So the woman I did work experience for gave me a personal recommendation and um, there was a job going in the events team and it's kind of snowballed from there. So I started off in there as a, as a marketing assistant, kind of helping out on the day-to-day tasks. And then the social media executive left um, and I'd been doing some social media work for him. And he said, yo, if you're looking for someone on the interim to, to take over our social media, he's your guy. Mm. And four years later, I'm still doing it. So, yeah. Wow. That's fascinating, man. You know, one of the things that we always talk about on, on the show is, um, is, is leveraging your network, right. Mm. To, to have to get opportunities and, and that's a, a perfect example. A lot of times, cold calling, cold emailing, you know, a cold applying online, uh, you kind of get lost in the ether of, mm-hmm. of competition. 
totally. once once you have somebody or you know foot in the door and somebody who can vouch for you essentially leveraging that network and extend their network to you um things things start to happen it's, it's a lower barrier of entry and especially when it comes to transitioning careers right you what you started off doing hotel school but you wanted to be a publisher those are two very different things and um yeah being able to demonstrate your capabilities and uh, you know and 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 sort of demonstrate your personality and kind of be you know vouch for yourself articulate your story helps a lot when it comes to uh those transitions as well as you know getting the opportunities and flourishing in them 100 percent. because on paper someone would be looking for a very specific type of person on the cv and the fact that my cv didn't necessarily hit those points doesn't mean i'm not going to be a good employee it just means that I'm not what they've been looking for in the past. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact that I've been here for four or five years at the FT with a hotel school background, you know, I'm doing a job right somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Getting in front of them was very, exactly. helpful, it sounds like exactly. I mean, you mentioned cold email, cold calling. I mean, those things can definitely be effective, but really those are meant to just, like you said, you know, you just really want to get your foot in the door, get, grab their attention for 30 seconds. That's what the cold calling is really good at. Just mm -hmm. pique their interest and then from there. But on a side note, like you said, <clears throat> yeah, getting in front of them is very helpful when you're trying to get a job. We just talked about that. Yeah, on our last yeah. episode. Yeah. And so, and so it sounds like, you know, you've done very well at the FT and, and you obviously uh, enjoy aspects of it since you've been there for, you know, four or five years. Um, and so, but there's also this other side of you, this, this, this entrepreneurial, this writer side of you. Um, and I'm sure you, you probably went through some, you know, conflicting points in, in time where you, you are doing social media marketing and you're, you're climbing the ranks, but you also have this, this desire to, to pursue publishing and writing, right? Because you entered into a uh, corporation that does writing, but you're not actually doing it. So, so how did you start to sort of, you know, facilitate that? How did you kind of pacify or, you know, start the writing piece of that and bring that into your life? I mean... Working is a nine to five job and I've just found ways around the nine to five. Um, you know, there's all the rest of the time besides sleeping, which is quite important apparently. Um, but there, there's so much time that can actually be used around the nine to five to pursue things. Um, and it does sometimes feel like I'm trying to pursue two careers at once uh, because, you know, I'll be working 9.30 to 5.30 and then going out to networking drinks or going out to a book launch or going out to meet someone who may or may not provide a lead for something or going to meet venues for, you know, for, for events. And it does, it can sometimes feel like you're, like you're working two careers, um, but it's totally worth it. Yeah. So, so, so let's talk a little bit more about that. So how did you get started with, with the writing piece? What's, what does that story look like when you began well, writing? Well, like, it's, like I said, my first, the first poem that I wrote was age 14. Um, I think this, yeah, the second poem I wrote was a Valentine's poem. Um, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, at first, when I was younger, it was kind of like, this is my thing. I'm not really showing anyone. And I actually had an ex-girlfriend who said to me, uh, oh, that's quite, you know, poetry, that's quite a feminine thing. And I was like, oh, so, so, you know, I was keeping it, I was keeping it kind of on the down low for a while. 
and you know my writing was just myself and it was a way of it, if I experienced something it was a way of dealing with that and um, kind of almost like journaling uh, and then I did this I did a writing course at the University of East Anglia um, a month long in the summer where every day you're going into classes and you're learning about dialogue or you're learning about how to structure characters or you're learning about what perspective is best to use for what kind of storytelling, that kind of thing. And it was, it just blew my mind that people are actually like, that you can go into a class and study this and chat to people and go for a beer after, after class and keep chatting this stuff. And like, this is, this is amazing. Mm, yeah. Um, and so that really. With like like-minded people. What exactly. I mean. Exactly. And I, at the end of that course, my professor, um, made me promise that I would keep writing. So then I did. And then when you've done a writing course, people start asking you about it. So you start sharing a bit more and you start getting, because the reception of what you're sharing is quite good. You, you're encouraged to share some more. And it, that again, that kind of snowballs. Yeah. We, um, we talked about that actually in, in previous episodes as well. And, and we actually, you know, went out to, um, uh, your, your birth, your birthday party actually went to Nathan had a recent birthday. So yeah, I did. Uh, yeah. Happy Turned thirty, big three. <laughs> wow! <laughs> happy birthday! Thank yeah. you, thank you. Yeah, but we were at that event. We were at your uh, your birthday party, and um, you know, we ended up meeting uh, another guy. Well, I met him for the first time. You knew him already, and we were just talking about uh, how awesome it is to to get to nerd out on things that you're into, like social media and website design, and you know, stuff that isn't just mundane conversation. It's important. Yeah. And it's really, it's like, it's very therapeutic. It's very healthy to talk about your passions with other people that share them. Absolutely. Absolutely. It sounds like Oliver, that's, that's the kind of experience you got from this writing course. You know, you got to be in that environment where people are all, you all have one very focused interest that you're very passionate about. And, and, and also, you know, it gives you something to talk about. If you know, you've accomplished something or you're working on something when you go into conversations, someone says, what did you do today? you know, you have something a little bit out of, out of the blue to talk about. That's not the normal, you know, I cleaned my house or washed my car. With oh groceries yeah. Whatever or... your standard bar conversation. Is. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Very true. And when, when you start getting that back from other people, like, Oh, I, I was battling with that issue as well. Or like this, I have this issue with my book and then you start like, Oh yeah, I've, I've been there as well. And yeah, it's it's very niche, and that's why it's quite cool to find other people who speak the same language almost. You know? mm. So then, where 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 did this 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 newfound passion and this newfound community sort of take you? So you you were writing, you did the course, and then how does that evolve? Well, that same summer, I took a trip to Paris uh, with a good friend of mine. Well, two good friends of mine from Holland. And we spent a week kind of sitting down by the Seine, drinking wine out of the bottle and listening to like just stumbling across jazz musicians down there. We walked through the Louvre barefooted and got kicked out. Um, we rented a cheap room in a hotel, like at the top of the hotel of a hotel. We ate a lot of baguette and cheese. We, we lived like a traditional, like we lived the stereotype, basically the, the stereotypical Parisian bohemian artist and it was amazing um and that kind of formed the well that that was kind of bubbling in my mind um that and the writing course 
and I was like, well, this is actually a story. Like this, this could be a, this could be a cool story. And this was just kind of bubbling under. I wasn't really thinking about it. And sometimes I'd think about it and then, but most of the time I wouldn't be thinking about it. And then, um, yeah, it was about around this time that I was like, well, I've written a fair few poems now. I've written, you know, a few short stories. The thing to do now is to write a novel. But how the hell do you start that? Yeah, that's a great question. How do you start that? I mean, that's a, something we talk about a lot on this podcast. How do you start? I actually was talking with someone last night about this as well. Someone else that had like entrepreneurial vision. And it's relating to what you're saying as well. It's like you're upgrading, right? You're going to a novel now. It's like, it's a little more daunting task. It's like, how do you start something that big? How do you yeah. start? And a lot of that, my, um, I guess, in my opinion, of starting and is, you know, it, it, first of all, you have to decide that you want to do it, right? You have to yeah. decide what it is you want to do. And then you have to commit to, to saying, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And there's a lot of, at least for me, when I'm starting new ventures and new, you know, ideas or projects, um, it's, it's, it's convincing myself that, you know, I can do it. This is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do. And I, and I maybe spend too much more time than I should hyping myself up to get ready to do it. But um, that's, it's a necessary thing. And a lot of times you need inspiration to do that, right? Other people that are doing it that you can watch or the right community around you and people encouraging you and things like exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because often you can make this pledge to yourself that I'm going to do this thing, but you don't actually know what it involves until you start. Mm -hmm. And suddenly there's all these barriers that you're coming up against. And you're like, I didn't even know that this was going to be a part of the journey that I've committed to now. Yeah, that's something that... Uh, I believe in as well. What you just said is uh, regarding, yeah, inspiration's good. Having a community around you of like-minded people to um, talk with, but not just that, not using that community purely for that motivation. Uh, like you just said, you just have to start in some form. People think, uh, you know, it's like, what is it? Uh, motivation, inspiration, action, but it's really, action was it action motivation inspiration you have to start first is the point mm -hmm. you just have to start and um it sounds like that's what you did yeah um it was both of those things it was just starting but it was also having a community around um because i found this thing online called nanorimo which any writers who are listening in may have heard of uh, National Novel Writing Month. Every year in November, there's this online community that pledges to write 50,000 words in 30 days. Now, there's various ways that people can engage with this. Um, I just did it by, there's a website where you can follow your word count. So every day you plug in your word count and it shows you a graph and it shows you how many more words you have to do per day in order to hit targets. And if you hit target, you get like medals. And some people put this in their email signature or on their Twitter, you know, NaNoWriMo winner yeah. 2014 kind of thing. Um, but there's meetups, there's online forums, there's loads of support for people. I didn't really make use of any of that, but I think, you know, for some people like that may have been useful. Um, and that for me was a really useful way of just putting, taking this dream of I want to write a novel and turning it into very a very tangible goal of 
okay, well, it's only 50,000 words in 30 days. And that's only 1,666 words a day. That's pretty doable. That's like three sides of A4. Mm -hmm. And suddenly from this dream that seemed a million miles away, you've like, you've got this thing that is actually in front of you every single day, broken down and it's saying, okay, you just need to write three pages a day. And then after 30 days, you will have a book. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you say that. Uh, I was reading a book the other day and I think there was a chapter in there regarding um, as far as like that motivation versus action, what I was kind of talking about earlier. And uh, it was about an author, actually. Okay. It, it was an author. I don't remember his name, unfortunately, but uh, this book was talking about an interview with the author and someone else. And the interviewer asked the author, you know, you've written you know, 16 novels over the last like, you know, seven years, eight years, 10 years, whatever it was, it was a lot of novels. And they asked him, you know, how do you consistently get this done? And he, he replied, he said, all I have to do is write 250 crappy words every day. Yep. And his mindset, it sounds a little bit, you know, pessimistic, but it's really about he knows that whether he's feeling good about writing or not good about writing, he has to write a minimum of those words. Yep. And I found that really interesting. It's like, that's what keeps him going every day. You know, that's the difference between um, strategic thinking and tactical thinking, right? Because a lot of times, um, although the, the tactical piece of, you know, when am I going to write those 250 words mm -hmm. is, is something that a lot of times we get hung up on. It's, well, when am I going to do that if I have all these other things going on? But, but even getting to the point of saying 250 words, you have to have a strategy, right? The, the overall goal is to complete a novel. Your strategy is to break that down by word count. How many words do I need to do a day? Okay, now you have a strategy and a plan. And now you start working on your tactics of when am I going to do those? How do I, you know, organize my day? I like that when, yeah, because people do get hung up, myself included. I, I'm guilty of this of getting, like, making sure it's the perfect time or whatever it might be. Huh. Yeah, like planning it out to a T before I ever start. It's like really the key. You just kind of got to start. You just just start. start exactly. And the thing with the 250 words is, I mean, I've heard people say I just have to write 100 words because the very fact of writing those 100 words already starts putting you in a mindset starts getting you into that flow that once you've yep. written a hundred words it's easier to go on and write 500 words than it is to stop i agree i agree so yeah it's, it's kind of like uh it's in a way it's like uh tricking your mind it's like i just gotta write this that's it and once i'm done i'm done but most exactly. likely when you're writing right you're already in that flow of writing where a hundred turns into 500 very easily exactly and another thing is that 10 words written is better than 200 words unwritten or, you know, a million words unwritten because you can agonize forever over how good your words are that you're putting down at that moment. But I found that the, the key thing is just to write down, write stuff down, mm -hmm. get those, you know, get into that flow. If it's not very good, you can edit it later. Mm -hmm. At least you have that minimum, right? You still did those words and that's important to keep, you know, exercising that muscle, right? Every single day. So just getting you in that flow of writing. Exactly. And you have something to work with then when you start editing. Cause if you, yeah, if you don't write, there's nothing to work with. 
Yeah, we we talked about something like this on um on a on a previous podcast about how to um, maximize your productivity. And one of the points that we made in that was that um, if you need to start setting up, so not everyone can do a word count, right? But another way to do that is use a timer. Okay, yeah. so like you know, at six o'clock today, I'm going to set a timer for ten minutes. Yeah. And I'm going to work on something. Right. Yeah. And you, when the timer starts, you start working on it. When it goes off, you can stop. You've done it. Yeah. But just like you're writing, you know, 100 words, it's easier to write 500. Um, same thing. If you're if you've been working on something for 10 minutes, you know, you're already in that flow. You're in that mindset. And it's a lot easier to do more than what you. Yeah. Planned. And to add on that. Yeah. Timers. To, I mean, in all honesty, timers have really like they've kind of transformed my life. I use them for everything in my life just to um, make sure I'm conscious of the time. But as well, it's a task that I don't want to do. I mean, we all have them, right? We all want to procrastinate and we all have them. Yeah. But if there's something, you know, you need to get done for whatever goal you're, um, you're going after, then breaking that down into really either small time increments or like you're doing small word increments, it's really about just getting something done. And usually that leads to, more productivity. You just have to start. I was talking with someone last night about this real quick. It was a girl that she's um, transitioning careers or she wants to, and she's a nowhere to start or anything like that. And I just kind of gave her a few tips and I told her, Hey, I know this is, it's very tough to start, especially if you're transitioning out of a career for like three years, right? Tell me about it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Monte knows. Yeah. And I said, starting is the hardest part. And that's actually applies to everything in life, going from zero and then moving that forward or pushing that rock down the hill, you know, or that boulder, that's the hardest part is the very beginning. But if you can kind of come up with different tactics for yourself to just take a very small step forward, that first step always turns into two steps, three steps, four steps. Mm -hmm. You just got to start. It's the hardest part. What, um, so going back to, to your journey, Oliver, what, yeah. what kind of tactics then you understood that you had to write, you know, 1,666 words every single day. So how, how did you do that? How did you accomplish that? The thing I, well, yeah, the thing I realized was that there's so much dead time in the day when you're either sleeping or you're just doing mindless things or you're scrolling Instagram or you're watching TV that can actually be used for writing and 1666 words. I think I was doing that in like two, maybe no, I think maybe like three hours a day. If you wake up an hour earlier, if you plan so that you've bought your lunch and you can just book a meeting room out and you can spend your hours lunch break writing, and if you can then write for an hour in the evening, suddenly, again, that's not so much to do in, in those chunks. Um, again, it's strategic. It's, it's, it's planning. It's um, going. I said it's discipline. It is, it is discipline, um, especially when your alarm goes at six o'clock in the morning and you're warm in bed. And it's, this is November, right? This is November in London, so it's pretty cold. My room was in the loft. I could see my breath at times that winter. Like, wow. It was much easier to stay in bed than to get up and write. But, but you, you also know that if I don't get up and write now, then I've got to do two hours this evening. Because you, you're kind of budgeting your three hours in somewhere over the course of the day. And you're just trying to sneak them in here and there. 
Um, and you're trying to play it tactically. So on the way home, I would be reading kind of the stuff that I'd been writing the, the day before. So I was already getting into remembering what I had done before. And I'd always write myself notes. So when I finish writing one evening, I will write myself notes as to just, just a few bullet points as to where I'm going to continue on. Mm -hmm. So that you always know, as soon as you pick up the pen, it's not just like you're starting afresh, but you've got that momentum from the day before that says, oh yeah, this character's going to do this, then we're going to have this scene, and then there's going to be this revelation. Mm. Yeah, that momentum from the day before. That's why you write those minimum words. It's like, you may have a bad day, right? And you're like, I got to write 200 words, but you get those done. Maybe the next day you're feeling more in the mood to write, but you look back and you can use those 200 words from the day before and kind of build on it. Yeah, I think that's key, actually. That's really key because um, a lot of times, like when, when I, I'm getting ready to write a blog article or something like that, um, you know, obviously the first part is you, you're, you're looking at a blank you know, screen with a cursor popping at you. Hmm. And then, but if you write a couple words, even if it's in that timer of like 10 minutes or something of that sort, or, or maybe I'm doing a, a design, I need to do a cover of something or whatever it may be, build a website. When you, when you start something, even though, and you've budgeted your time, picking back up on that task is a lot easier when you, when you come back to it, right? You're not, you're not dead in your mind where you're kind of just like, okay, now I have to start afresh. And, and what you're doing, I thought is really interesting is it's, that's basically what happens in meetings. If you're working a nine to five at the end of a meeting, you have action items. What happens next, right? You don't just drop exactly. it off right there. Yeah. It's, it's not an empty lot, right? Yeah. There's already a few bricks that you laid down from the day before. And the first thing that you start off with in the next meeting is, okay, let's take the action points from last meeting. How are they doing? So exactly. you're, 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 yeah, you're driving yourself forward again this and again. Back to consistency is what I'm hearing. Just staying consistent and doing a minimum amount to make sure you just keep that flow going because maybe Tuesday you don't want to write, but you still get your minimum. And maybe Wednesday you're really inspired and you use what Tuesday had. Right. You know, exactly. Writing. So now with that being said, um, I'm curious to know Oliver. So obviously, you know, this sounds like a great strategy and you know, you have your word counts, you have your time budgeted, but you know, life gets in the way sometimes. Mm -hmm right always and so <laughs> were you, yeah so were you able to complete those word counts every single day consistently and and if you weren't what are some things that you did to you know kind of make up or get yourself back on that horse yeah i mean i'd be lying if i said that i hit the 1600 every day um it often came down to me on a friday night being like I need to write 6,000 words this weekend <laughs> to make up for, because, you know, life gets in the way. You've been out to yeah, a gig, you've been out drinking with friends, you've been out, you know, you don't always get the time to do that stuff. So, and there are weekends that I'd set time aside and I would spend four, five, six hours writing um, and then be completely drained from that. But a great kind of drain, it's like drained but fulfilled. Yes. Um, so it definitely happened in, in peaks and troughs. Um, yeah, it definitely wasn't consistently 1600 words. I would do, I, would, I got some jumps and yeah. some, some slow progress. One thing that, um, so at this time when you were going through this, or this time when he was going through this, um, Oliver and I were actually living together at this point. Mm -hmm. And, and he's, he actually told me about this NaNoWriMo uh, month of the word counts. And um, like you mentioned, uh, I, I logged into the website, but I didn't necessarily use it. 
But what I did use, because uh, I was writing my book at the same time as well. Actually, I was reviewing mine, and I had to review X amount of words a day yeah. and edit it. Yeah. And so, um, you know, Oliver lived upstairs. I lived on the on the on the ground floor, and um, and we would keep each other in check, right? During our writing, you know, I would send up a text to him and say, "Well, how many words are you on?" And you know, he'd ask me, "How many words did you edit?" And we would kind of keep ourselves in check, especially when it came down to those six thousand words you know, uh, uh, a, a day kind of thing when, when you're behind. Um, so it's, it's a nice way when you have like an accountability partner. Just say, that's the word I was going to use right? there, accountability. Yep. When you have an accountability partner to, to check yourself with, and, and that goes back to having the right people around you, the right communities. Cause if you're working on the same thing and you're both passionate about it, you take, you know, a month long endeavor like that very seriously. And exactly. also it's a little fun too, right? You're competing with each other. So there's a, there's an element of competition as well. Right. right. Competition, accountability, uh, being exactly. around like-minded people that will motivate you and support you. I mean, that's, that's why it's so important. To, that's how you get things done. But it's not, just, it's not just the competition. It's also the fact that if I'm struggling with something or if I've had an idea, I can, you know, we would have writing breaks and we would just go and hang out and we would talk about what we've been working on for the last two hours. And I would say, I've had this really cool idea. And Lante would say, that's cool, but have you thought about this? And just during these, right, these breaks, you would, you, you would get this synergy because you'd be bouncing ideas off each other. And then he'd say, you know, I had this idea for my book. And, and you would you'd critique each other's progress and you'd, you'd give each other a sense check about it. And you would also build on that. Uh, so that was another, just not just the accountability, but also just the the, in, the the intellectual kind of ping pong mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it yeah it, it really it really helps out on the book so thank you Lante <laughs> no problem and thank you as well um so so that that's good to know and we just wanted to kind of make that point you know very clear for for you guys who are listening in is that you know it's great to have a strategy and tactics and and there's a lot of accountability and discipline and consistency that's involved but life does get in the way of of your agenda right the world doesn't revolve around you and so um it's important to be able to pacify and facilitate progress some days you're gonna have to work harder than others but um but it's key to to have the right kind of people around the right mindset and uh, and that helps things go by a lot smoother yeah i was going to add to that as well as far as um you staying motivated like that and having that support system around. It's also good. Uh, you know, you might have bad days as well, which it sounds like you had a few days where you weren't able to write those words and, yep. but it's good that you took ownership, right? You knew that you still had to get the, the minimum done for that week and you powered through on that weekend. And, um, it's a good characteristic to have, right? To take ownership of things and not blame, you know, any external circumstances for whatever you didn't get done that day. Because you knew yeah. at the end of the week, right, you had to accomplish it. Yeah, and it's also the not beating yourself up about the fact that you, you went to a gig rather yeah. than writing, writing your words tonight. And yeah. you would probably beat yourself up a lot more if on Tuesday night and Thursday night you went out and so you didn't hit your workout and then you didn't catch up at the weekend. You're almost absolving yourself. You're like, I was right to go out because I've still hit my word count. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's, it's just so, keeping that balance is what I'm hearing. So you're not going to mentally beat yourself up about it and therefore feel worse about your writing if you can hit these targets. And it's, yeah, it's kind of a perception thing as well. 
absolutely absolutely and also 30 days is 30 days is a really short period of time for 30 days you can uh you know your friends will understand if you're this is your writing month communicate that to them they know this is your writing month he's going to be slightly antisocial for that month and for 30 days you can do that and good friends will stick around absolutely i agree now now so let's talk about after the 30 days right so okay. um obviously you might have, might have um gone a little bit more than 30 days perhaps uh with the catching up and and that's okay but but now you you've you've gone through it all and, and you have this thing that's that's written right one thing that you mentioned is that you know you're not trying to critique your words you're just writing them down you'll come back and change them later yeah. so now essentially you have a novel that has been written right after this 30 days has been completed and so what's that process like now you have to basically go back and review all of your work right and on a business you might have to go back and review all of your tactics all of your strategies your business plans you know so so how are you sort of keeping your energy going during that time and what what do you what does that look like for you well the first task because i write by hand um, was to type it all up and that again was in kind of hours stolen in the day so I'd, I'd wake up for like half an hour I put my, my book next to me my manuscript next to me because it's a whole load of uh, loose sheets and I put that next to me in bed and I just sit in my bed typing mm. and that that almost didn't feel like a chore because you know I'm sitting in bed I'm just kind of typing reading my own work it took a little while for that to be typed up uh, and because that's a more boring task, I set a time goal for myself. And this was, I think, yeah, so I, I, I finished it in November, end of November. And I knew that when I went to my family for Christmas in December, you know, towards the 20, 20th, 21st of December, I wanted to have the whole thing typed up so I could edit it over the Christmas period, print it out and edit it. And so I had this very fixed deadline that I needed to type it up and print it before this date. And it meant, you know, on the final day, I was in the office till nine o'clock typing it up, um, just getting it ready to, to be printed. So I would hit, hit this deadline. Um, so that really helped. And I found that actually as well recently, um, and we'll, we'll get onto that, but to set deadlines in time that actually mean something. So not just, pick a date but to say by this time I'm going to have this ready in order to give to this person so I now live in London um, but a lot of my friends are still in Holland or you know Lante sometimes comes over to London and those are fixed dates and when I'm working on something that gives me a fixed date to say okay by this time I'm going to have done this and this and then I'm going to give it to you for you to look over or for you to read or for you to critique. But that is a deadline that will not move. Yeah. That's, uh, that's and you don't very, let your friends down. That's a very important thing as well. Um, I always uh, say that to people is that when you decide to start a project and you know, you've committed to it yourself and everything is internalized and you're ready to go and you're, you're in the mo the motions and going through it all um, setting those deadlines, but also it sounds like what you were doing as well. What I'm about to say is, is also giving yourself a public accountability, right? Very much. When so. you tell yeah. people that you're going to do something by a certain time, mm. um, you know, 
it's, it's those people are going to start asking you, have you done it? Have you finished? What's up? You know, it starts a conversation and that's another way to keep yourself sort of motivated in that moment. Setting timelines is, is key, but if you don't have a reason, then it's exactly. very hard to blow that off. Mm. Yeah. I mean, having those deadlines in place, you see that date looming over you, you know that you have to get it done by that day. I mean, you, when it's in your, I, what I do for myself, like I write it down. So it's always visual, whatever my goals yeah. are. So I have a whiteboard. I wake up, I have a lot of different personal and like professional goals I put on there. And I mean, I look at it, I, I can't avoid it. Right. I mean, I wake up, I look over at it. And so having those, um, yeah, a deadline that's visual, I think can be very helpful as well. Yeah, very much so. And so with that being said, now with these timelines and, and now you're, you know, you're trying to hit them and, and obviously you've pinned them on yourself and they're fixed dates. How, how are you keeping your energy level up with this? I mean, obviously, you know, you had to do it, but how, what do you, are you, are you talking to yourself? Are you, how do you keep your motivation alive and that fire going while you're doing this? Well, from the moment I wrote my book, from the moment I started writing my book, I knew that I wanted to see it in print um, because why would I write a manuscript and then just leave it in a box somewhere? Or So I wanted this thing to be a physical, tangible thing. And that was this, this picture that I didn't, I didn't know what the book was going to look like. I didn't know what it was going to be titled um, initially. I didn't know what, what the cover was going to be. I didn't know anything. But I had this vision of me holding my first book in my hand and that's kind of what drove me forward so I wrote the book in a month and people are always a bit surprised by that when they ask you know how how long did it take to write the book and I say a month They're like wow a month and I and I just you know my disclaimer is that I spent six months after that editing it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I said before the goal is to put words down it doesn't really matter about the quality and then you can edit it afterwards um, yeah. So I went through it six times and every time, I, I mean, I just kind of kept in the back of my mind, that I want to see this book published. And so I need this thing to be the best thing, the best manuscript that it can be. And that was interesting as well, because I realized that say on, so I went through the book six times. And again, I was setting goals for myself, like by the end of January or by the end of February, I would have the first edit done. Um, and that was interesting as well, because once you've done six, once you've gone through the book six times, you start, you realize that you start changing things maybe in the fifth edit back to how it was that you may have changed in the second edit. Mm-hmm. And you'll constantly find yourself tinkering with words and you're like, is this really important? And what I decided is that the, I started on the sixth edit and I decided at the beginning of that, that this would be the last edit because Mm -hmm. otherwise, because otherwise I'd still be editing it today because when is a work of art really complete? Like there's always something more you can do to it. There's always like a, a a, a sentence structure that you can change or a description or something. And eventually you're getting so down into the details that it doesn't really matter to the reader in terms of the whole plot of the story and the feeling that they're going to be left with. So I just decided that it's, you know, I'm going to do it once more and that's it. Yeah. And that was, that was quite an interesting lesson to learn that you can actually continue editing it forever and you're going to have to put your foot down somewhere. I, I wrote um, a similar status update on LinkedIn not too long ago. Um, 
And essentially what I was trying to articulate is that a lot of us uh, who are starting businesses, uh, in this case specifically online, we focus so much on the product and, and perfecting the product and getting the product exactly right that we neglect to look at things like the marketing strategy of how you're going to sell this thing. And so I just wanted to draw that parallel there that, you know, so you have to put a, a, a stop date on when you're going to stop working on this thing because it's very easy. It's, I mean, this is your, this is your, 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 your life's goal. This is your dream. This is your baby. And you want it to be absolutely perfect, but exactly. Um, perfect is perfect is subjective, right? Yeah. So, very true. Perfectionism. I'm definitely guilty of that. And, different areas for sure I'm still working on it but what I'm hearing from you is it's a kind of a parallel to what they use in business it's like you have your you said you wrote your very first rough draft of that novel right in one month yeah business that's kind of like having a minimum viable product yeah you write that it's messy right it's not like incredible quality but minimum viable doesn't work right if you tested it on your audience per se and with yours, like you had your minimum viable novel, right? In one month, mm. then you spent the next six months perfecting that. But there is that balance between having a product that works and going ahead and taking the plunge and releasing it as opposed to just you keep on making it better over, over time, you know, as far as making it perfect. Got to have that balance there because you'll never release it. It'll never be good enough if you don't, right? Yeah. I've been guilty as well of that on several occasions and I still find myself in that trap now that I'm more aware of it, I can, you know, tell myself to stop. But, um, particularly I have that issue when it comes to uh, creating videos, right? When I'm doing video posts, I could probably work on a one minute video and do 20 takes of it. Right. Saying, Oh, I didn't like my intonation there. Or, Oh, let me change this order. Oh, you know, this was slightly off or this angle or whatever it might of be. Of course we'll always find something, you know, and at the end of the day, it's kind of like, when the person views this video for one minute and you spent two hours making it, you know, the point is, did you get the message across, right? Is, is there value in this message? Who cares about the shadow that's hanging over your shoulder? Yeah. You know, are you, is there value in it? That's a common entrepreneurial problem. I mean, I listen to a lot of those types of podcasts as well as ours. Mm -hmm. And um, basically, yeah, a lot of entrepreneurs have that uh, struggle of trying to make it so perfect, but, in a way, um, you know, there's usually something underlying that. It's like you're, you're trying to make it so perfect, but what's the real reason? Like you got to just kind of put it out there right? and right. see how, it, how people, uh, and they give you feedback and you can make it better after that, right? <laughs> and so that's, interesting. that's a really interesting process you had for your novel. Similar that's, to that. That's interesting because I was just thinking about feedback because your own perfectionism is one thing. But then you start sharing. So I've done my, I've done my, you know, I did my six edits and then you start sharing it with people. And another really interesting learning was, well, no, an interesting question was how much of this, these people's feedback do I take on board? How, A, how qualified are they to give this feedback? Are they a friend or are they like a creative writing professor? Um, because one, you know, someone might say, oh, I really liked what that character did in that chapter. And the other one might be like, that bit in that chapter, what that character did, that was a bit boring. And so the question is, how much feedback do you take on board and how much do you stick with your own gut? And that was a really interesting, interesting question um, for me. And I, there is no, there's no one size fits all answer. 
Absolutely. Now, um, I just want to kind of go on this small tangent here that while you were building or writing and, and editing this, this book, there's obviously other things that need to happen, right? Like, for example, a cover being done, or maybe now is when you're starting to think, you know, you're almost done. What, what do I do next? Do I go to publishers? Do I self-publish? How do I market these things? These questions all need to be addressed at some point, right? Yeah. So there's this like longevity, there's this ambiguous goal. Now you have this novel. Um, what are you doing next? So um, with that being said, I was wondering, um, did you seek out any help, right? Did you outsource anything? Um, did you get other people to help you put these things together just to make sure you're keeping the needle moving forward and it's not just this one track project? I did eventually. Initially, I, well, so the book's finished in my eyes. I start pitching it to agents. So again, this is a whole new process for me. I have no idea how this works. So I was, you know, how do I get my, you're Googling, how do I get my book published? Um, and the process I discovered was that you pitch to agents and if agents like your book, then they will buy the rights to it and they will then sell the rights on to publishers. So, but every agent is different. Every agent wants different genres. Every agent, some agents are not open for submissions anymore. You know, some agents are covering 50 different authors. Some are covering three, like, and you're trying to make a, make a decision based on this information that you're finding online. Um, so I submitted, and some of them say they take like six to eight weeks to get back to you. Some of them don't respond at all. It's a bit like applying for jobs. Um, you put all this time into an application and then sometimes, sometimes you hear back in, in like half an hour and sometimes you hear back in six weeks. Sometimes you don't hear back at all. So I was submitting to these agents and there's a very, there's a particular package of things again, like a job application where you submit a cover letter and a CV. Here you submit a synopsis. Um, you have to, you know, there's a synopsis. You have to submit the first, some, some people want the first 5,000 words. Some people want the first three chapters just so they can get the flavor of the book. So I was submitting this to agents and the feedback that I was getting from people is that they liked the writing style. They liked the plot, but it was too short to be a commercial novel. Now what NaNoWriMo hadn't told me was that a traditional novel for the commercial market is 80,000 words and above. Now, NaNoWriMo was gearing you up to write this 50,000-word book. Mm. So, essentially, from that, you're doomed to fail in the commercial market. Mm -hmm. Which I didn't realize until, you know, you've written this book, you've done all this hard work, and suddenly they're like, no, it's not good enough. It's mm. not long enough. It's just not long enough. I mean, you're like 30,000 short. Is that what I'm hearing? That's almost... Yeah. Almost what three quarters of what you wrote, and doing all that. Again. Yeah, thirty thousand. Yeah. yeah, that's already. Yeah, what is that? Like sixty percent. Mm -hmm. like, damn. <laughs> so oh, yeah, interesting. So agents, agents were saying, can't you just make it longer? <laughs> what a question! Can't you just write a couple more thousand? Right? Yeah, can you just, just make it thirty thousand? Man, get that by tomorrow, please. <laughs> just add it in, like, but the story's finished. Exactly. Yeah, you structured like, it around fifty, right? This is a yeah exactly structure a story to have a beginning middle and end like where, where, makes sense. where am I supposed exactly the story yeah. is finished now if I put thirty thousand words in I'm always going to look back on those thirty thousand be like mm, <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a bit filler interesting so 
with this dream of I want to see this book in print, I decided to look at other avenues. And, you know, you know, from from people printing holiday snaps and stuff, you can get photos, photos printed, you can get photo books printed online, family albums, you know. So I started looking down that avenue. I quickly realized that that was, it was very formulaic. It was very, you know, you, you would get this book for this price. And the prices were, in, first of all, the price were incredible and it was very inflexible. And then I started looking at um, self-publishing. So there are platforms, Amazon has one um, called CreateSpace um, and there's a few of them um, that are that are print on demand. So basically, your book will be listed somewhere on this. In this case, on Amazon. When someone orders it, the book, the factories are told print this book and ship it to this person. So the book doesn't actually exist until someone buys it. Mm. So that was one way that I could have gone, but the way I eventually went, and this was literally just a, a coincidental Google. I was, you know, Googling how to print your book, London. And there is a company that prints for some of the massive publishers. So they print for Penguin. And, you know, if you flip, if you open up any book, um, if you open up five books, there's a chance, a good chance that one in one of those at least will say printed by Clay's. And this is an organization who, who have massive factories, uh, or massive factory printing books and they have tailored their, what they offer, they're offering to the independent market, which is now building. So they will do print runs of, I don't, I don't know what their minimum is, but they will do print runs probably of about a hundred up to, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of books. And so they're geared up to tailor to people like me who want to do a print run of 250 books at a pretty competitive price and at the same quality, the same papers, the same covers as the books in Waterstones or Borders or you know wherever. And I was just very lucky that I found these people and that they their offices were just across the bridge from where I worked. So I went over there one one lunch break and we started chatting. And sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, I just wanted to draw a parallel there of what you just said, um, or kind of like pull out a lesson from that is that, you know, you had this, this goal. And I always talk about having a goal before you start doing things. Um, but your goal in this case, your objective was to, to see your book in writing. Yeah. And, uh, I just want to draw that parallel to the job seekers out there that, um, a lot of times we, we, we look at all of these, these positions and applications and things like that. And, and you're really, you know, you, you see something that sounds nice, you think you, you know, it fits your mold, and then you apply and then you don't get the job, which is similar to what you were doing where you, you, you're, you want this book printed and you're, you apply for a publisher and then you don't get it printed because you fall short somehow, right? Mm -hmm. And so in the job seeking market, um, a lot of times it's, it's, it's consistency, right? Um, just because you didn't get the first job, you know, apply again, apply again, apply again, because the more you do, the more research, right, you do in, in that application process, you start to learn things, right? You might get a call back from here. You might learn something from somebody. You ask for feedback. Why didn't I get the job? 
And those are the things that you can then take and build into your, your own application, your own, you know, list of accomplishments to better your, your position um, or your position to succeed. And, and in that case, when it comes to the job seeking market, um, it's, it's, it's very important to, to seek out feedback, which is what you did and on all that research, but also to not give up, right? Just because yep. you tried one, two, three, four, five different avenues, you know, that number six might be the one that's self-suited similar to the clays and the self-publishing people that fit your mold. Yeah. To, to really add on that as well, as far as how most things really work, it's um, you just got to keep trying right in a strategic way. Just keep putting those attempts out there because most things in life are a numbers game and you just got to, yeah. it's all statistics, right? You know, you keep trying, you keep trying, you, you tweak it here, you tweak it here, try to improve it. Um, you know, do what you can, right. That's, in your ability, you, you know, you can control your actions, your behaviors, you can't control others. So you can try to do what you can to the best of your ability and just keep attempting. And it sounds like you just had to attempt a few times and you eventually landed that. Yeah. And at a certain point I put in so much effort that I wasn't going to let it slide anymore. Like once you've spent 30 days <laughs> right, working your butt off to write this book, you're not going to, because you've put in so much effort, you're not going to be turned down by a little bit of resistance. Yeah. And expecting that adversity is always good as well. Um, Basically, you know that you've just gone too far. You have too much invested in the project. Yeah. And I mean, there's that famous story about JK Rowling who got turned down however many times before someone took a chance on her. And that, you know, that story does the rounds regularly when people are saying, you know, I got turned down by, by an agent. It's like, don't worry. Because, because again, that is, yes, it's agents deciding what they feel will do well for the commercial market, but it's also a personal thing. Um, and an agent really needs to stand behind the book if they are to pitch it and sell it because you don't want someone who's half-heartedly trying to sell the rights to your book to a publisher. And then their heart, if their heart's not really in it, you want someone who believes in your book. Okay, so as a part of all this effort, you know, going through the publishers and, and you know, all the different efforts, then you finally figured out a way to get your book published. And so, um, and so you did get it published. And now you're, you're, you're holding this, this hard copy, right? This tangible product that you've, you know, been dreaming about. So, so how, what's the next step there now? Now that you have it, how do you give it to everybody else? How do you share that? Well, the next step is the oh man, I've got 250 copies of this book that I need to shift. Um, so you start looking at ways of getting it out to the audience. Um, so obviously the first main chat, main things you do are social media and all, all the digital channels. So I built a website. I made sure my book was available through Amazon. I made sure that my book was as easy as possible to get for anyone. And then you start plugging it on social media and there's some people do um, blogger book tours. So there, there are some influential people in the, in the book blogging area and you kind of approach them and you can ask for reviews of your book and you send them copies and you do giveaways on, you do a giveaway on Goodreads. You make sure your website's all up to date. You make sure that your book is in, as many possible um, bookshops and online avenues as, as is possible. So I did some, I mean, I've had, I had limited success with social media actually. 
um, I did some Facebook paid campaigns, got loads of traffic, loads of clicks and no conversions. Not, I don't think I got a single conversion from that, um, which is okay. Cause you put, you know, you don't put that much money behind the Facebook campaign um, or I didn't anyway. Uh, but I didn't find that generating much returns beyond the vanity. Yeah. So, so now that's pretty much what uh, a lot of our podcast episodes are specifically about is, is how to build your brand online and then conversions. And, and Nathan, you're, you're a, an SME subject matter expert mm. in uh, in Facebook. Mm. So th- I'm sure this is a situation that you run across with clients all the time. What, what are some things that were some advice that you could give when you're, when you're setting up this campaign and maybe you're seeing traffic, but you're not converting. Mm, mm. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a tough question to answer. There's a lot of, there's a lot of factors involved. Um, but I would say with, you know, with your situation, I don't know exactly what you did as far as the campaign you ran, but if you are trying to get awareness for this book, like you said, you know, the, the vanity was nice. I'm sure you got some good likes and comments and stuff like that. Yep. But, as yeah, far as yeah. conversions, uh, you're, you're referring to purchases, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 With books. I mean, that's a great question on Facebook. <clears throat> Obviously doing your, you know, your research, your audience, uh, seeing, finding other books in that same niche, see which ones are yep. doing well, uh, looking at what type of content they're putting out. Uh, if they are running ads, uh, looking at that as well. And, um, what I would definitely, recommend be good for a book is creating a Facebook group around, yeah. around that audience and the benefits that can tie back to your book kind of nurturing exactly. them for a bit right and really giving them other types of content and then naturally leading them uh, to the purchase of your book thinking that um, <clears throat> just what you said by creating a group and nurturing them um, a lot of times People want to get to know, especially with independent publishers, independent business owners, solopreneurs, people want to get to know the person, right? Because anybody can write a book, anybody can start a business, anybody can sell a t-shirt, but you know, sometimes telling that story of your journey, similar to what we're talking about on this podcast, and you coined that one as a a soap opera sequence, right? Where you, you tell your journey, the reasons why you're doing something, how, you know, you finally publish this book so people are are buying into you and not necessarily the product that's a the, the money is a byproduct of the actual product yeah make a good point as far as self-publishers you know it's like how do you really stand out from these bigger um, publishing agencies that have the marketing spend to give their writers exposure exactly if, yeah, if you're self-publishing you, know, you don't actually have that reach and so you got to get really creative with it and like monte said you know, people buy from people they know, like, and trust. And that, that comes yeah. to someone that's writing a book that's self-published as well. So I think a Facebook group would would be a really good starting point if you were to go that route. That's something I've done recently because the learnings from this were rather than writing a book and then building a community to sell it into, build your community while you're writing the book, drop in bits of content from you know, excerpts from what you're writing, stuff you're involved in now, these events I'm doing now, drop in stuff while you're going along, keep people interested, and then suddenly, boom, this book is available, and then there's a guaranteed market for it already, rather than trying to do it the other way around, which is what I did 
Exactly. I mean, I think we, a lot of people fall into that trap, you know, it's like, oh, this is my idea. It's going to be amazing. And um, everyone else will think it's amazing as well. But like you just said, you know, building that community, building that market first. uh, And then naturally you can release that product at the right time when they're primed to buy. Exactly. It feels a lot more authentic that way. Absolutely. So, so social media is one of the channels that you use to sort of build your brand and didn't sound like it, uh, it worked out at that time. What are, uh, what are some other things that you tried to do to launch this book? Well, I actually tried some stuff in the real world, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> is, real world. <laughs> there is still stuff that happens offline. So <laughs> right. I, I, I decided to take a chance and uh, do that. So the book is heavily grounded in jazz and Paris and kind of the underworld of Paris. Uh, and so I wanted my launch to reflect that. Um, and I, so I went to a few venues. I scoped out several places uh, until I found a basement bar that had all the, rec- all the requirements. So they had a bar downstairs. They had a license for live music. They were open late enough. They had the right capacity. Uh, it was the right kind of vibe as well because I didn't just want it in some town hall somewhere. Um, and then I set about kind of starting to organize this night and make it feel as jazzy and as poetic as possible. So I booked a jazz band to play as background backing music. Um, you know, I got, I bought some French magazines, laid them out on the tables. I just tried to make it as I got some French beers on, um, together with the bar, we worked together to get some French beers. So to make it as almost immersive theater. Um, I did contemplate having some of the people, having people acting out some of the characters and having them um, actually coming in and pe- interacting with people. That didn't work out. But still, my 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 aim was that once people were at the at the launch and then read the book, they would be like, "Ah, oh, yeah," and they started picturing those things happening in that kind of scenario. So it sounds like you, you, you really were trying to bring the book to life, right? So all exactly. of the scenes and all of the, the vibes that you're sort of, you know, telling the story within the book, you, you wanted people to experience that uh, live, right? In real life. And I think that's a, a, that's a really good point because going back to creating communities and, and nurturing your audience and things like that, what you've done is, is, is exactly that. You create a Facebook event, but this is a real life event. And you nurtured your audience and kind of brought them along that journey with you, kind of letting them experience your product um, before they actually purchase the product, right? Exactly. And you see that a lot in commercials as well. You know, Coke might have a good commercial out, but you see people experiencing Coke, opening the Coke, right? And to the point where you want the Coke, and you buy the yeah. Coke, right? People buy with emotions and they, it's not a logical uh, process. And so... Uh, being able to showcase and create experiences for people uh, gets them into that emotional buying mindset. Uh, and it's also, like you said earlier, Oliver, it's much more authentic that way. Yep. And that showed in the sales figures as well. So that worked really well. When So now you, you, you tried the online, which obviously like there's a massive reach there. And if you want to sell the product, there's a lot of steps involved, like, you know, the communities and stuff and audiences and targeting. Um, mm-hmm. But then you also did this, this launch, but obviously that's a one-time event, right? You're going to have yeah. to keep the momentum going. So while you were thinking about this, I'm sure you considered that. Um, 
was there anything else that you were doing to kind of build your brand outside of social media and, and organizing that launch? Well, yeah, you're doing all sorts. I'm, I, was, I was doing all sorts of things just because I realized that being self-published, I was going to hit a spike and then it was going to tail off really fast after all my friends had bought it within about a month, you know, I would be hitting zero sales if I didn't do other things. So I was, you know, reaching out to everyone in my network, reaching out to old teachers who might want to buy, uh, you know, a bulk copy for their classes. Um, I was reaching out to book clubs, all sorts of different, different avenues. Um, and again, none of those really worked. And then something completely unexpected happened, which was, so we were living in Archway. And if you remember at Archway Market, there was that guy who was selling books. Yep, right outside the, uh, the I forget what that store was called, Waitrose, was it a Waitrose or? Turk, the Turkish Greengrocer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so he was there every week selling secondhand books and I'm a bookworm. So and when I was finishing books, I was taking them to him because I was like, I'd, you know, I'd rather take them to him than to a charity shop. And so eventually I took my book along just like I finished this I'd like you to have a copy because it would be cool to see my book on a shop stand even if it's a second-hand book, book stand and so we got talking and it turns out you know this is this is maybe a year and a half after I start bringing him books that I discovered that this guy has another shop which is probably the coolest bookshop in London which is a Dutch barge hundred-year-old Dutch barge floating at King's Cross that is stacked to the rafters and beyond with books. So he invites me down. He says, come on down. It's open every day. And so I go down and I get talking to these guys and they have a stage up on the roof. And it's, it's almost from that moment, it's almost destined that what happened, what did happen or what is continuing to happen was going to happen. Um, Cause I stayed there late one night and we just started talking and, they were interested in doing more events, putting more poetry and poetry events on. And I was interested in organizing a poetry and jazz night because the two, the two forms, art forms, which work really well together. And so yesterday, actually, we finished off the summer season, the second summer season that we've done. So we did five, I think this year, and we did five last year. And all that was based off literally just me bringing my old books to this guy at the market who at the time didn't mean anything to me is now one of my good friends. And we host these amazing nights together that where we consistently get kind of two, three, 400 people coming down to them. So it's, that was an eye opener. That yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Actually, you know, that a lot of times in business, you know, we, we try the traditional ways of, getting our brands and our markets out there with, you know, digital social media and obviously, you know, book launch events, book launch events, which is, uh, which is what you see a lot of times in authors, they're signing their books, but you know, you always wonder like what happens after this. And, and it's really interesting. And obviously, you know, it took a lot of time to get to this point, but you know, you started off by taking this secondhand, you know, shopkeeper guy, one of your books or two of your books and letting him, you know, sell them from his stand, you know, just for free because, you know, that's a, it's an on the side thing. It's not even an avenue that you were 
really looking for. And then, yeah. you know, a couple years later or a year later, a year and a half later, all of a sudden, you know, you find, you start talking to this guy, you build a relationship, right? You've nurtured that relationship and he invites you to uh, a whole bookstore on a floating boat, right? That, that he has. And, um, and then potential from there kind of just skyrockets, right? Yeah. And that was a real epiphany that you can plant so many seeds and that's, that is kind of how I measure my progress is the planting of seeds because well, yeah, I mean, every day you can send off, you know, 10 emails to, to various leads and get, you might get one back within the next week. That's great. But it's the seeds that you're unintentionally planting, like, you know, taking these books to this guy. I had no idea that this was going to turn into something that is now, you know, part of my identity, really, these events. Uh, and that's, that's, and that's a, it's like a business relationship that's built out of freedom, uh, fr uh, friendship, sorry. And that is where you get so much value. Yeah. <clears throat> I want to draw a, a parallel here with, um, with the job seeking market. Um, what you've done there is you've maximized the number of touch points in your network, right. To bring something to fruition, whether it was intentional, intentional or unintentional. Mm -hmm. And, I talk to people who are interested in transitioning careers or, you know, getting that next promotion or even landing that first job all the time. And, and obviously getting that interview, the first interview is, is a really hard part of that. Um, because from a digital side, you have all these applicant tracking systems where you submit your resume and it scans it digitally, right? There's no interaction. Yeah. And then you also have, you know, sometimes you might meet somebody at a career fair or a formal networking event. And, and that might be like your book launch where, you know, you get a whole bunch of contacts at once, but after it's over, it may just plummet. Right. But then it's the, the, the smaller touch points, the independent touch points when you're getting it, when you're, when you're going through a job seeking process to talk to people who are involved in those industries, if they email you, email them back with a question so that they respond back to you. If they recommend that you speak with somebody, speak and reach out to that person, but CC the person who, you know, gave you that initial contact, right? Reach back to that original person and say, hey, I did talk to the person that you told me to talk to and kind of begin to foster that relationship ongoing and ongoing because a lot of times people think about those who are top of mind when it comes to opportunities. And when you yes. have an opportunity at hand or if I have an opportunity and, you know, I, it might not be the right opportunity for me, but I've talked to somebody enough to understand that this might be right for them that's when those references recommendations and referrals come into play. Exactly. And you never know when they're going to come. Yeah. And you never know when they're going to come and, and they may take a long time, uh, exactly. you know, a year and a half, but yeah, the, the planting the seeds thing is very fascinating, which applies to a lot of areas in life, honestly, just being able to, you're essentially what you're doing is like digital marketing. Like what I do, you're generating leads, right? People that might be interested in giving you this opportunity and but you're consistent with it continue to plant those seeds and build up that lead build up that pipeline really of people that can give you these opportunities and just you know keeping your numbers consistent and you know statistics show that you're going to generate um an a good opportunity after a while yeah there's um there's a a, a lesson in that as well with um with, with being consistent and 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 touch points but 
I think another key point of that is also when, when it comes to networking and you are looking for jobs or opportunities, it's important to understand that if you want somebody to help you, number one is you need to be able to articulate your story, be transparent and honest about what it is that you're trying to do. That way they can fully you know, engage and help you. If, if you pitched yourself as, hey, I'm an author, here's my book, that's a lot different than saying, I'm a self-published person. Uh, this is how I wrote the book. This is why I did it. These are all the things that I've gone through. And you know, now I have this thing that I'm holding in my hand and I'm trying to get it out to the market. That's a whole different scenario that you paint. And if people understand your, your mission um, very, very you know, clearly, that, that opens up the doors for opportunities. And the second thing about that is also being able to, when you go to networking events or opportunities, whatever it may be, is understanding that you shouldn't go in with the mindset of, I'm trying to just help myself out, right? Exactly. Collateral to the table. And in this instance, you were just giving this guy books for free, right? Other books, not even your books, right? That's value, value, value. Exactly. And then when you bring in your book, drop your book into there, and you're still giving it to him for free, now he has a story behind that book, right? When somebody walks up to the, uh, the table, this book in particular, I know the author. He lives down the road. This is his story, and they can vouch for you. So bringing collateral to the table as well, right? He might get a sale out of that. So bringing collateral exactly. to the table is, is, is critical when it comes to pursuing opportunities. I was just thinking that the more you help someone when you don't need their help, the more they will help you when you do need that help. Yeah, exactly. Adopting that, that true altruistic um, outlook is, is basically giving, just giving lots of value really unconditionally. Yeah. So now you have this, uh, this book that you've published and uh, your, your events are now consistent rather than having one launch and you, you found uh, a business partner along the way and, you know, you're getting good turnouts, these events. And so you've, you've kind of taken this, this author, this writing piece to another level. And you've brought it to, like you said, the real world where you're hosting events around yeah. that, where you're also giving other people the opportunity to, you know, play music or, or write their poetry as well. So, um, so, so what's next in the pipeline for you? Are you, are you writing, working on another book? Um, do you think you're going to turn it into more of an event host sort of thing or, you know, this dream started out with a tangible book that you wanted to write, but now it's sort of, you know, evolved into or manifested into something else. Yeah, the good news is book two is on the way. The bad news is it's, it's dragging its heels. Um, <laughs> I have got it written. So I've done, you know, you remember my process of one month writing, six months editing. I've now written this book, which it now based on the agent's feedback, because I'd quite like to get this one traditionally published, based on their feedback, I'm writing it longer. So it's mm. about four times, just under four times longer than Fresh Air and Empty Streets, my initial, my, my debut. So I've taken their, their feedback on board and I wrote a book in order to be longer. Um, but because you, I've written the book four times longer, that means what? That's if I take the same ratios, that's going to be at least two years of editing. And I, I don't want that to happen. <laughs> I want to speed that up a little bit. Um, but it's dragging its heels because there are other things happening. So I've booked four. So these barge events are outdoor and we've just had the last one of the summer season. So now I'm taking them indoors and actually having ticketed events so that I can pay the performers, uh, you know, what they're worth. Um, and keep a little bit over for myself at the end. 
which is quite nice. Um, I'm also working in some collaborations with, I, I, I like collaborations because it's a, I hate the word synergy, but you get the sum of the parts is greater than the individuals. Um, and so I, I really like working with people like jazz musicians, uh, so overlaying poetry and jazz, or um, artists, so overlaying words and, and paintings or sketchings or drawings. So there's, there's a few of those happening. Um, there's a magazine that I'm writing for now, um, Italian sports and sports culture magazine, who've just asked me back to write another piece. So from this one avenue that this was, this is my book and this is my project, it's now branched out into, so I do events, I do writing for magazines, I do a bit of freelance writing. I also have my book. So it was quite nice that earlier this year, I made income off three of my own streams, which was uh, magazine writing, book writing, um, book sales, sorry, and organizing events. And slowly things are kind of building out from one thing into multiple things. Yeah, it's amazing how, you know, how effort, right? A lot of effort up front can, you know, manifest itself into a lot of different things. And, you know, a lot of times it takes that, that initial step and that initial commitment, right? Because you know, going back to the beginning, you, you went to school for hotel, right? Hoteling yeah. and hotel management. And on a whim, you know, maybe not on a whim, but you know, you decided that your passion truly is this, this writing. And so you prepared yourself, right? By taking courses, by surrounding yourself with the right people, by writing, you know, even though you were keeping it private at first, you, you were still writing and exercising that muscle. And then from there, you decided to turn it into something big, like a novel, right? And, and from the novel, now that you've accomplished that, it leads on to another step, which is now getting that out there. How do you market this thing, building these relationships and, and so on and so forth up until now where you're, you're, you're doing the writing, but you're doing a lot of other things as well along with it. So um, I guess uh, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, I, I, an interesting or a, a cool equation. I'm an engineer by trade. Mm -hmm. An interesting equation is opportunity plus preparation equals luck. So you did a lot, a lot, a lot of preparation up front, bringing things to life. And when the opportunity presented itself, like the, the barge guy, um, then all of a sudden you have luck, right? Quote unquote luck. Yeah. So that, that's, a, that's a fantastic Yeah, story. and to really add on that, I mean, it's, it sounds like starting out with that project, like he mentioned, uh, did turn into multiple income streams now for yourself where you don't rely on one thing over the other. And they all kind of work, like you said, in collaboration with each other um, to make a better life for yourself as well. Yeah. So now that we've kind of got the story and, and you know, I think this is a re really unique one and there's a lot of lessons that can be applied outside of writing um, and just against the, the general entrepreneurial journey. Uh, just want to do uh, something a little fun, Oliver, and we're going to call this a rapid fire round. Cool. So I'm just going to ask you a couple questions and then maybe you can give us uh, some insight as to what your answers are. And then, uh, you know, kind of get the people, the listeners to, to, to know you a little bit better. So um, I'll start with a, a little cliche one. What's your favorite book? Um, favorite book is The Dharma Bums by Jack Kerouac. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Keep going. You can elaborate, yeah. 
yeah. So he's most well known for On the Road, uh, but I actually prefer Dharma Bums. It's about these guys trying to be Buddhist and trying to be you know Zen and pure in their lives, but constantly being distracted by alcohol and parties and women and yeah, it's relatable. Hmm. And so, what would and you say um, your uh, favorite instrument is? So I play drums, so I'm biased towards that. But if I didn't play drums, I would say either saxophone or double bass, just because they're awesome, funky, jazzy instruments. Nice. All right. And it seems like, you know, you, you, you grew up in the Netherlands, you lived in, in England. Um, obviously, your book is around Paris, so you've kind of bounced around a little bit, and plus other countries in your internship. So sec, uh, third question is, what's your favorite country or your favorite holiday vacation? Probably Colombia that I went to earlier this year. That was that was an amazing trip. Just so diverse and so different to what we used to. And so loud, so colorful. So yeah, Colombia. Yeah, being exposed to different cultures, that's good. And so what would you say here that um, your favorite festival is? Favorite festival? Um, I went to one this year called Ipsig Rock in sicily and it was basically a whole town i say a whole town it was pretty small that was taken over by this festival and there were maybe two and a half thousand people there and so you went from one gig in a church to one gig in the cloister to the main stage which was in this massive castle and you would, it was warm and the food was amazing and the wine was amazing and the music was amazing and you kept running into people again and again and again and it just felt really personal and you knew your way around the streets and it was just a lot nicer than some of these massive 60,000, 80,000, 100,000 people festivals that can just be a bit faceless and yeah. Yeah, I hear that Lollapalooza is a bit faceless. Lollapalooza, exactly. <laughs> All right, so now just to kind of round this up, um, essentially throughout this, this episode, this discussion, this conversation, we've, um, we've kind of identified three main phases of being an entrepreneur, which is the initial one is getting started. The, the middle phase is more of how do you feed that energy, kind of stay motivated and, and, and maximize, you know, your efforts. And then the last one being is how do you scale that business? Um, how do you sort of welcome that manifestation of other opportunities as well? So if you could give us three tips right? Maybe one on the getting started, one on the middle phase of keeping your energy up, and then one on keeping that fire going. Um, what would those three tips be? So on getting the fire going um, is, I'd say, don't be afraid of setting big goals, uh, even if you don't know where you're going to, how you're going to reach them. Uh, because eventually, if you have that goal always in the back of your mind, suddenly this opportunity will come along and you'll be like, ah, in my case, NaNoWriMo, ah, this is where I can actually apply real life to this dream and actually make it, make it real. Um, in terms of, you know, actually doing it, I found setting goals and being, and, and that accountability, um, telling your friends or telling someone or having a concrete goal for when you're going to complete something was very powerful. And as you, I, you know, we, we talked about the accountability before. And then in terms of expanding, 
just keep talking to people, keep being at events, keep putting yourself out there because you never know, you never know who you might run into at a poetry night that you're at, you know, or everyone, when you're at poetry nights or when you're at events that you find interesting, there will be your kind of people around. So it's immerse yourself in environments where there's your kind of people and people who interest you and invariably there will be interesting conversations that lead to interesting outcomes. Um, so yeah, that would be it. That's fantastic. So, um, Oliver, you, 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 this book that we've been discussing, uh, you mentioned the title earlier, which is fresh air and empty streets. That's the one. And, uh, and obviously that's available on Amazon for anybody mm-hmm. to purchase if they like. Um, so would you mind sharing maybe a, a piece of that book or a poem or a piece of writing just so we can get a flavor of what it is you actually do? Uh, yeah, I can grab something from the book if you'd like. Hang on. Right. So this is a piece um, I mentioned earlier that me and two others went to Paris on this initial trip and we sat down by the Seine and we listened to jazz. And that actually happened. Um, and it's, it comes back in the book because the book is kind of, kind of fiction, kind of secretly autobiographical in parts. So uh, this is a piece as they, as Felix is sitting with this father that he, doesn't really know but is trying to get to know a little bit better by this trip to Paris and they're heading down to the Seine. Down here, Felix asked. Alexander nodded and pushed ahead as they picked their way down the steps, clambering past students of all origins and French people of all ages towards a wall of sound storming up at them from a group of about 10 musicians. This was clearly a meeting spot. Most sitting down here were armed with cans of cheap lager or bottles of wine. They made their way to the wall of the river, the water lapping not far below where they sat. Beside them perched a homeless man, a dog curled up at his feet, gnawing at an unopened bottle of water. The music climbed the steep wall between them and them and the road, crept into the gaps in the cobblestones and was reflected on the happy faces, numbering a hundred or more. Felix found his mood lifting with the music. Alexander cracked the bottle open and they sat in silence, yet far from silence, drinking in the atmosphere and the wine. Felix was glad for some distraction, masking the silence between the two. The music continued relentlessly as Felix drank from the bottle almost without realizing. The saxophone rasped over the top, blowing a solo into the year's early air while the double bass tones sat fat like a bullfrog in the background. All members of the band stood, even the drummer, choosing to hang his scaled down set from his neck as if in a marching band. A flute player, who Felix had hardly noticed, piped up with a solo of springtime birdsong that sounded like it came from the very trees above them. Felix found himself drifting on the music, carried along on the wine biting his lips but inside felt warm and at ease he rose up on the synchronicity of the music the perfect balance of sounds and the swaggering style with which they played each musician grooved their own part both musically and physically 
moving and swaying to the sounds plucked from the air, part rehearsed, part purely felt. When the piece receded into the silence, Felix found himself applauding, back in the real world and surrounded by real people. He felt the cold stone hard beneath him and blinked as if awaking from slumber, recognizing the feeling of being away, but never having experienced it through music before. He turned to Alexander with a smile of amazement on his face, quite forgetting for a moment that he was supposed to be angry at him. That's amazing. Mm. <laughs> Wonderful, man. You can definitely see how your, your years of, of effort and, and practice and preparation you know, shine through that. Yeah, you painted the picture very well. Absolutely. Thank I felt you. like I was there. Uh, Thank yeah. you. So, so Oliver, how, how can uh, people get in contact with you or purchase your book or, you know, if they want to know more about your journey? So my book, like you said, is available on Amazon. It's called Fresh Air and Empty Streets. Um, all my info about my book, my events, and if you want to read any of my poetry is on olivercable.com. That's cable as in the electric cable. Um, the next book will be out in due course. The best place probably to go for um, social media is the cable rights community. It's a closed group on Facebook that gets the first, first info on, you know, book excerpts, um, random piece of writing. I do poetry, um, the events. So that will probably be the, that'll be the place to look, check me out. Cable rights community. Fantastic. Awesome. So uh, yeah, if anybody's interested, definitely reach out to Oliver Cable for some more amazing story insights and advice when it comes to building uh, or growing your entrepreneurial business. Man, incredible interview with Oliver. I got to admit, <clears throat> what I really loved about his story was his commitment that from living in a hostel to going into a competitive job market. So he pretty much found his way and he eventually got that job at the Financial Times and that takes a lot of um, perseverance really to make it through. Not only that, he was able to navigate that complex structure really of the publishing world and uh, figuring out his voice and his audience and creating a group of people who really love poetry and jazz just as much as he did. So if you love this interview, we're gonna have plenty more. We love interviewing different entrepreneurs and digital marketers really learning about their experience and their journey. Once again, my name is Nathan Garrett. I'm your digital dynamo. You can find me at nathangarrett.net. And I'm Lante Tacona, your collaboration connoisseur. You can connect with me on LinkedIn at L-A-N-T-E-I. All right, thanks for listening.